Hey everyone, welcome to Conversation Peace with Patrick Armstrong. I am the titular Patrick, and this is a show where my guests and I discuss what piece of the conversation we aren't talking about, but should be. Special shout out to all of my returning listeners, and a high five and hello to everyone joining us for the very first time. Thank you very much. The month of May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, or APAM, and is meant to celebrate and reflect on the history and peoples that make up our beautiful diaspora. As part of that reflection, this month I'll be sharing nine conversations with my friends and folks I greatly admire in the community as we discuss those missing pieces of the Asian American conversation, what we know, what we might not know, and what we can do about it. These are the APAM conversations. My guest today is a Filipino-American, anti-bias, anti-racist educator, ethnic studies researcher, motivational speaker, and cross-racial coalition builder. He is currently a PhD student in the Education Leadership and Policy Analysis Program at UW-Madison, focusing on ethnic studies policies and how they translate into practices. I am honored to welcome Tony De La Rosa to the show. Hey, Tony. Hey, what's good? I'm happy to be here. Man, it is, it feels like I've known you for forever, even though we've only met in person like one time. One but time. Uh, before we hop into the conversation, I introduced you a little bit, but do you mind telling uh, any listeners who may not know a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, um, I'm a father to a almost two-year-old, Sebastian Rizal de la Rosa. He's half Filipino and half Cuban, or let me go backwards. 100% Filipino, 100% human. Uh, let me correct myself with that. Oh my Lord. See, this is what happens when I introduce myself with family. Um, and then um, husband to my, my, my wonderful best friend and partner, Stephanie Jimenez, we met while teaching. And then um, son to um, uh, my father, who's Papangan. And my mother is from Cavite of the Philippines. I try to go back to their regions as much as I can. Um, and last, I would say um, my big project right now is like being author of Teaching the Invisible Race, Embodying a Pro-Asian American Lens in Schools. Um, that's it. Essentially, like, where can we bring Asian American ways of being, practices, mindsets, policies, programs in the school, um, wherever school is defined? I love that. And I want to say this is the first time I've ever interviewed someone where they've introduced themselves with their family. And I absolutely love that. I think that's incredible. And I think I, I would love to hear more of that. So yes. thank you for doing that. Thank you for modeling that. Yes. Um, so let's just dive right into it. The series is called The APAM Conversations. We're talking about that conversation around Asian America. For you, what parts or pieces of that conversation about our community do you think we should be talking about more right now but aren't? Oh, then dang, like back to what you just said, I feel like um, I just started hearing from, there's a lot of things, but just a little <laughs> moment about family. Like I would love to hear about people's families coming into how they're shaped and how they're socialized and who they are, right? Coming into the conversations. Um, I know you from you, right? Mm. I don't know your um, adoptee experience. I don't know how that has shaped you other than what I've read, right? Or seen on forums or on like social media, um, or just friends, um, I'm doing work with, it's like all considered with the purview of work. So if I could hear a little bit more and talk and listen on stories from people's families, um, outside of work, that would have been so nice. That's like part one. Part two is I know for a fact that we're not talking enough about, um, although this is considered a tide in ethnic studies, Asian American education policy that is moving, um, rapidly right now across the nation which is so cool to see um i'm hype like this is like my <laughs> research topic obviously but um 
it's just different per different region based on the policies. If just to give you some background, education um, ed policy like really just start in K-12 started recently in 2022, I believe, with the Teach Act in Illinois mandating Asian American um, studies, history, essentially community, equitable uh, community history to be taught in all schools, right? Really cool to see that like take stage, especially amidst, you know, Stop Asian Hate Movement, right? We need this. The community was uh, demanding education and this is happening. So this is cool, a direct uh, solution um, that's being devised and um, through, you know, legislation. And that's just taking off in New Jersey with the Make Us Visible Coalition in Connecticut, the Florida, um, New York, here in Wisconsin, we're having our own bill that's proposed. So there's so much happening right now. It's still emergent, but the emergent stages are fun. So mm. I'm doing field studies around that. Um, and that's like generally the, the big topic that um, like I can speak to now, like where are people at, where their minds are at, where kind of the tensions are with this movement. Because I kind of study the life cycle. How mm. does the coalition form? What do they talk about in forming? How do they like advocate for the policy? Where does the policy go? How does it fail? How does it go back and then fall in the hands of educators? And then how does it impact students? So to me, that's a whole dissertation. That's a whole yeah. book, right? Yeah. And that's going to take many years to study. So I'm still at the beginning stages of it. Um, and I think within this podcast, this like short time, I think that will take, honestly, um, a big chunk of it um, for today. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for sharing that one. And I think, you know, my follow up questions are usually how do we deal with these things within the community? How do we deal with these things for or how do people outside of the community deal with these things? And I think these both touch on each of those things. So I want to go back to what you brought up that first point about families and their actual stories. Like, how do we get these oral narratives? And how do we get more of them? Um, What have you seen from just your time in the education space as that piece of it. Um, I'm thinking of like, from an adoptee perspective, Kim Park Nelson, she wrote a book called Invisible Asians, where it's collected a a ton of oral narrative. Um, How have you seen that change for our community over the time that you've been in the education space? It's still, sadly, pretty emergent in my mind. Um, I mean, it's not like, hmm, this is a really big question, first of all. So I'm like trying to answer it in a way that's accessible and makes sense. Um, hmm. From my standpoint, I just started adopting it more because it felt more humane to do. Mm. It felt more grounded in where I am at as I'm a 33 year old father now. I, you know, I my salient identity has like that's such a humanity's word, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> my salient identity has shifted so much. Like I used to identify by my rate my my ethnicity and my race, you know, Philip, hella Filipino American, hella Asian American, brown Asian, you know, activist by the things that I did. But recently as a father, I've kind of just, it's just for one, it's, I intentionally done it. And it has forced me at the same time to identify as just father right now. And then like, mm. when I identify that way, I know that it's connected and it tells me I'm connected to a whole lineage of everything. And I'm all, and which makes me think about just, just constellations. It makes me think about leadership, how leadership, and it takes me even to like, this is not linear now. This is all conceptual, <laughs> just sure. popping off. My brain is everywhere. Like my brain is also going towards this idea of like individual versus collectivism. Collectivism is more of an Asian diasporic idea and core value. In the Philippines, we have kapwa. 
um, which is like interconnectedness, right? That's something I'm relearning now at this stage um, as I'm 33. And I'm, it's still pretty emergent, I would say, when it comes to education. Um, when it comes to Asian American, I think what I hear mostly is like a lot of people who are doing um, anti-bias, anti-racist work, um, organizing, have been doing that more and saying that. And then it's now hopefully translating, like, I guess it's up to me and others who are educators who are at that intersection of schools as orgs to like start translating it into the school building, right? Into the mm. work, it, where, where learning is happening, essentially. And how does that work from that perspective for someone like me who's not in that space? You know, how do you take what you have here and build it into these curriculums, these schools, these educational pieces? Yeah, I, I mean, like, I think that's perfect that um, you brought up that oral narratives piece. My book is a lot of oral narratives. Honestly, um, I interviewed um, for every chapter so many people um, and, you know, a chapter on disability, a chapter on cross-racial coalition building. Um, and what I was learning is that I really wanted to know who those people are and who are their ancestors. So I just started asking, like, who's an ancestor that is, you know, maybe it's not a living ancestor. Maybe it's someone who's just influenced them because mm. I'm just, I am drawn to people who think of their identity as temporal. It's like, okay, I'm a part of this movement, not a moment, mm. a movement. And part of my book's thesis is this book is a part of a movement, one little moment in this movement. Um, and I, you know, I, I had read a poem. I put a poem in there talking about that, like we need to be a part and teach the movement um, and all of its parts. Um, and I, I know even if we teach within that framework, this idea of teaching a movement of like, oh, you know, when is Asian American? When was the first term coined? Why was it coined? Mm -hmm. You know, like all the way up to now, um, it's a difficult and daunting task. Also, um, a critical and hopeful and like powerful task to do. Yeah. And it's, um, I think that's the task, right? It's like making sure that homage is given. And when you think about our identities as temporal, part of something that came before and that we're passing down, I think it opens the door for more people to consider who they're connected to, how they were socialized into being. I, 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 a framework that I use that's helpful in the book is like, um, Dr. Bobby Harrell's um, cycle of socialization, this idea of socialization, and it, it codifies every piece of how knowledge, like how our basically way of being, ontologies, mm -hmm. way of knowing, um, epistemology is a way of seeing the world and manifesting who we are come to be, right? And the first interactions are family, right? And it, it names that. It's cool. We start off as like innocent and we have families giving our socialization. Then it goes into institutions, Right. And then it goes into other um, systems. Right. And then there's like punishments that get involved that reinforce institutional knowledge sure. and then et cetera, et cetera. And then there's like this level, there's like a pathway to liberation, which I think is the next version of that framework. So I think having that framework in that book, talking about it explicitly, uh, talking about it accessibly is helpful in translating how I just talked about family yeah. <laughs> and bringing it to schools and classrooms. No, I love it because I think a lot of educators that I talk to talk about, you know, when we have these kinds of conversations, it's one thing to come with the, the facts and the data. It's another thing to come with the actionable items, like how do we utilize and, and use this information and move forward where we can all do it together. And I love this idea of our, identi our identities being temporal or temporal in nature. 
I had never thought of it that way. That's that's very interesting. It's something that I'm I'm working in my brain right now and trying to process. That's uh, I'm processing that. I'm, I'm processing that now because I didn't mean to say that, but <laughs> it's I, amazing. In I this mean, conversation, it, makes, it happened. But it makes so much sense because, like you said, we're all when we realize or become aware of how interconnected everything is, and especially within our own communities and our own families. You know, we can really start to see where we can move to and move forward. I've been using this analogy of like, we constantly are moving one step forward, two steps back, and it feels like we don't make progress. And we want to move two steps forward and one step back. We're at least taking that first, that next step. And I think thinking about, you know, the intergenerational connections, the way that we transcend time, the way our communities transcend time um, from the things that happen at each point uh, is really important. Where does this passion come from for, this type of education, specifically this type of community work, I, is it from, was it passed down through your family or is it something that you just came upon during your own journey? Um, I wish I could say it was from my family. I, unfortunately, I feel like I'm digging back now. I'm doing re-interviews of my family. Okay. I haven't really, like, I, I, my, my wife jokes with me because, like, even to the point of like me asking like how old is my parents where are they <laughs> what is their birthday what did they immigrate and i'm like we should know this knowledge but i don't know this knowledge why don't i know this knowledge right and i have to critically examine like obviously it's part me i'm an adult i have agency to ask them and know this stuff and then also i question like why wasn't it important to me and why wasn't it important to them to tell me these things explicitly pass mm. it down because i don't think um in my personal in my family personally we talked about the past a lot we talked about lineage a lot. I think up until now, I think like lineage really got important for me, like probably around 2020 um, explicitly when I was like working with Teach for America. Um, you know, I did Teach for America in Indianapolis, but like I started moving around the country. Um, and then my friend, I had the opportunity to launch and lead a summit called the AANHPI Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Core Member Summit um, in 2020. With Suprita, Patnissi, um, queer, um, Viet Lao, Amer amazing um, artist and educator. And we led the summit on, and the theme was ancestors to descendants, mm. flat out. And I was like, wow, what if we just like focused? That's what happens when we focus on one thing and make it an actionable, right? So that was a theme. Right. And everyone had to incorporate that in their um their workshops, their talks. You know, Liz Kleinrock was there. First time I met Liz Kleinrock, which okay. is another friend, mutual friend of ours. Um, um, Dr. Roseanne uh, Gutierrez, right, who I'm working with now um, out of UCLA. So she's it, it, a lot of having just that theme to think about was just resonated with the Asian American community. And um, ever since 2020, I really just like, it just keeps spiraling back. And I think, again, that temporal piece, I love knowing that um, that part of me was that memory is still so summonable if mm, you will like sure. it's it's still part of the body and i think that's a powerful part of somatic is that like you did it now it's with you but it's up to us to un like how do we tap into it with our new lens uh, and reiterate it i think that's powerful i think that's real power just hearing you explain it was very powerful because now i'm thinking about my life and like certain moments that i'm calling back on especially on over the last three years on this journey like it's just been how I can recall like almost minute details 
of that. But re- it's like it just shows how foundational those moments were or that moment was was at the time to leave that kind of mark. Yeah, absolutely powerful. Um, let's move to you brought up the Teach Act. And so we talked about families and how we can, as Asian Americans, work to address this part of the conversation we're not talking about by, you know, thinking about our families, thinking a little bit more temporally about our own identities and our communities, like collective identity. The Teach Act is something that people can do outside of our community to help foster or facilitate conversation around our community. What other things can folks outside of our community do to help address this you know, missing piece of the conversation around Asian America specifically? Oh, I mean, like schools, like I, I, I for example, I'm going to contextualize this in what I'm doing now. I'm doing a fields method study of understanding impact of ethnic studies and where they're at, like all across, like from New York, I'm interviewing New York, Illinois, um, interviewing people from Wisconsin, right? And people are at so many different stages. So one, we can make a blanket statement of where everyone is and sure. like where they should be, right? That's going, I guess one thing is definitely going to the community. Um, two, it, I think uh, I, we don't have to wait for the policy, like you said. I mean, like we could, we could just get these stories told now. Like teachers, I mean, like I've t- I talked to a district here in Wisconsin and the district leader was like, ah, oh, Tony, come back to us. Like you two years from now, cause we're still establishing a foundational teaching and learning curriculum. Mm. We're trying to, we're doing alignment, you know, and I get that. I get that. And you want to like take that best step first, but don't let that get in the way of what can actually be true now and what right. needs to be true now, because kids, one, you have AAPI students at your school, NHPI students who are identifying at your school. So we need this now for like culturally relevant, sustaining pedagogy. So bring us in. You know, like I'm, I'm right. telling you, I'm offering you a service. Um, and a lot of it um, design-based since I'm a researcher, a lot of it's for free at this point because I just want to try out and test pilot things. So there are people who are willing to do that. Not everyone, I, you know, but there's a lot of consultants out there. I'm not obviously I'm not the only one. There's so many consultants, educators, educators within your building who are willing to start doing um, and piloting and testing and putting um, Asian American education woven into your classroom um, or as a separate class. That's another more infrastructural option. Sure, it'll take a lot more time and space. I've, that's what I've seen most schools do: either offer in a separate class or offer the curriculum that's woven into everything else. And mm. Like the latter one with curriculum moving into everything else, teachers can come to us. Like have your district come to us. We'll lead a training with y'all. Maybe hire us as um, Asian American activists in residence, you know, like mm, sure. And, and attach us to your school. Like have us stay there for a while just for it to, you know, like as you're building your framework, cool, we can work with your teachers awesome midway through just as to mitigate and i actually provide the service now right so we're not mm. waiting um for the per- like you know the idea of like we want we don't want to let perfect get in the way of like goodness and greatness and things that just need to happen you know right i think it, it sounds like this idea of being proactive versus reactive essentially like it's on on the side of the infrastructure, on the side of the institution to come out and be like, seek you out, seek people who do the work that you do in order to make sure that we're not just building something for the future, but like you said, taking advantage of what we have now. Um, 
And a lot of times it feels like these things are reactive. Like we wait for a tragedy to happen and then it's like, oh, well, now we need to pass legislation. Now we need to change curriculum, whatever it might be. And it's like, well, no, it's a little bit too late for that. But now, but now it's now. Like, let's take advantage now. Um, you talked about how you're doing this now. You're doing the you're doing their outreach, which is another problem in itself. Like be proactive institution and reach out to Tony. He should not be reaching <laughs> exactly. out to you. Um, <clears throat> you talked about how for the most part, you get pretty good reception, but you also run into people who are maybe resistant, who don't always want to to do that work. What would you say to somebody who is doing what you do and is, but maybe not at the level that you're at right now, but is wanting to to affect change in that same way? Who runs into some of the pushback? Because I feel like the people that you work with probably don't always at first come out of the gate and say, yes, we want to do this. They give you a little pushback and it's like, well, you know, we can help you or I can help you in this way or that way. What would you say to somebody who's trying to do that from that, not the same perspective, but a similar? So just basically other means out there, right? Trying to get the work in, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I even thought about leading a team. You know, I, I honestly, like, I was like, at this point, you know, at one point, as a design based learning, we should have a team and, you know, I can help coach them through the process, right? That, which mm. is an idea I have in the future um because they need it but if you're doing this on your own and you want to and there's a lot of people i can list that can do this work um just by lived experience right better than nothing right Mm. um honestly i do want to say i want to have you know it it is i want to acknowledge the political climate you know (laughs) Sure. Every, it's, I'm in Wisconsin, so you know, either or, right? Like, it, it really blue in the middle, but everywhere else, right? Wow, it's it's difficult. And we still, and all those regions need it. So, like, there's Asian Americans there and there's non Asian American. And when there's non Asian Americans, then you all need it even more because mm. you're not going to get access to those narratives. So, you need it. So, really, there's a lot of multiple ways to get to the same outcome. You need to, you need to have consent with the organization you're trying to work with. And that's like, I'm trying to, learn and unlearn too because i would go before my own activist side would come up and i think i'm conflating my activist side with my ego of like oh i know what you need you know Mm, sure sure but coming in that direction is never like you can you can use that direction with anyone and anyone's gonna feel like what he thinks he knows what i need like what like even if it's an organization that is pro these policies i come in still with like I have my questions of like, how can I best support you right now? I do have a list of things that I think would be helpful as a foundational, you know, uh, place to start. And then, so like the consent aspect, understanding what they need, because that foundational piece helped me when I talked to that director of curriculum, basically I know, know that they can still have this. So my part two is I'm going to reach back out. I'm not going to give up. So my person, my, my other feedback for this person is like, don't give up. Like now you got this knowledge. Don't mean it's like, uh, sunset to your right. to your uh to the work that you're about to do there's another way and this is part of the resilience and also getting innovative it's like okay so they need this okay i'm gonna try another app and be like what about these teachers who are ready to go can you identify a few teachers i am willing to provide my resources here um in this way um and if they can they might tell you no you know Sure. Cool. So now you could, you know, one, just a part of it is like just not giving up in that situation. Like give it multiple at-bats to see because you're still diagnosing what they need, essentially. They're still diagnosing what they need because they don't know what they need. <laughs> so like that's like the learning experience. So like they're both diagnosing, um, like mutually diagnosing a situation and you might just have a little bit more 
lived experience from Asian American diaspora, but they have the contextual experience. So you're like aligning for gap days. Um, lastly, I would say is you, you come prepared, right? Like if they're going to ask you like, what is your curriculum and what is your talk and what, what it could look like for a, you know, they give the options like, Oh, maybe we were ready for a class. What would that curriculum look like for a class structure? Be ready to talk about that. Or if it's ready to weave into curricula, not be ready, not just as talked about ELA or humanities lessons, social studies. What if a science, they, science needs it too. Um, mm. STEM, all STEM fields need it, right? So how do you talk and weave in that and have uh, pre-prepare for that conversation, right? Um, that's something I was always almost scared about because I'm a humanities teacher. I was a humanities teacher. And I'm like, do I have what it takes to tell people how to weave in AAPI narratives in STEM? Do I have, but mm. beyond, beyond the like include, you know, Tony De La Rosa, you know, Filipino as a name or a picture in your Graphic organizer, not nah, right. That's service level stuff, you know. <laughs> um, so be prepared to go deep um, if they want you to go deep. And I think those are the two things right now. I think, um, and then last, I guess the last piece is like, there's always work to be done somewhere else. So just don't sure. give up. Like, there's always work to be done. So you might, I, I, I might have wanted to do it in Madison or Verona, but maybe they're not ready for it right now. And I went through my diagnosis with them, and they're like, still like, we're not ready. There's so many different places. And I think that abundance mindset is super essential to keep us going. So I'll leave it at that. Absolutely. That abundance, that's a great way to end that because I think, you know, we get into this mindset of scarcity and like we have to do it here and it's only here. And that's the only way we'll know. Well, that's the only way we'll know success is if we do it here in this tiny bubble. And, you know, it's just like if we take one step out, we can see, oh, there's so much more that I can, I can have an impact in. So I appreciate you sharing that as well. Who right now are you learning from in the community? I know there's tons of people, so it's like impossible to name any just one, but anybody right now that you're really vibing with, anybody that you feel like you're learning a lot from at the moment? Yeah. Do they have to be API identified? They do not. Um, I would like them to be, but in this case scenario, I think one person that's sticking out, I read their article, Ethnic Studies Scholar, Dr. Nolan Cabrera. Um, I don't know where... Her- He's a professor at right now. I don't know, but I read an article and I want to meet them um, on ethnic studies as a structure where he outlines in that article. It's more like a brief, but essentially okay. like, I had thought ethnic studies was X, like one fixed thing, like a curricula, but it is criticality. It's like a bunch of values and structures and um, systems and way of pedagogy and teaching. So the fact that he... Um, just basically stretched it out and talked about each point. Yeah, it's like criticality, plurality, intersectionality, <laughs> right? And it's, it's it's a pedagogy. It's but also like he brings into like concrete, um, concrete um, explanations as to how to implement that, right? How to actually put that into practice, which I love because again, a failure of like what we're I guess I would say theorist policymakers is that when it comes to practice. That's when we really know the testament of the impact, right? If right. it's actually going to be substantive or not. So I think Nolan Cabrera is doing great work of connecting policy ideas and theories into practice. Amazing. Well, I will have Nolan Cabrera's work or however, whatever I can link in the show notes, uh, dear listener, you will be able to find that there. Thank you for sharing that as well. Um, we're coming up on our time here and I want to be mindful of that. Um, two quick questions. You said that you do celebrate the month. I know people have a lot of different feelings about Heritage Month specifically. Uh, anything specific that you're looking forward to in the month of May? 
Yo, so I have to say, like, I'm excited to, I'm excited to go and check out this Taft thing because I got the Taft Awards. I'm like, yes, congratulations. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, what does this mean? You know, and I have, <laughs> yeah, what does this really mean? Honestly, because, you know, we do this work, you know, I'm doing community work all the time and all of us are doing community work. So any, any one of us could have gotten this award. So I'm wondering, like, what does this mean? What is it, what can I do to, you know, distrib- make sure this is a distributive effort? Because in my mind, I thought it was gonna be multiple people because I saw the episodes. So sure. I'm going to talk with them and see the process, go to New York, do the thing, meet the Taft folks. And again, with that lens, like just come as a learner, see what they're doing. Um, there are people when I posted things about it, had said like, uh, you know, like, Taff is new, you know, like, I don't know what they're doing about. I'm like, well, then let's learn from them. Let's see what's, right. what's happening and have an open mind about it and figure this out. But I'm excited to go. Um, I'm taking my cousin with me. He is the godfather of my son. So we rarely have time to have like brown boy joy, you know, brown sure. Asian boy joy. So we're going to do that together. He's a DJ. So we're going to have some drinks. We're going to have some food, Asian food. Mm-hmm. And I get to take him um, like we were just hanging out when we were younger to hang out and like enjoy New York together. So that's a really like, you know, to end on family, like that is something that I'm really excited for. (laughs) That's amazing. Yes. Congratulations again. Uh, Incredible. Taff has been doing some incredible things. So I think they are somebody that we need to look out to and, and learn from as well to see what they're doing in the community. They are bringing people together. And I think when they're able to highlight voices like your own, voices like myself or Rohan's voice, Alice's voice, you know, that's amazing. It's a, it's incredible opportunity. And I love that you were the winner. I was like, Tony's about to win this because literally every person I see posting about it is for Tony. And I'm, I'm here for it. I'm absolutely I, here for it. I appreciate it. you, brother. How do we best support you moving forward? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm trying to be more direct with it. Um, please follow the work. You know, I'm on only on Twitter and Instagram. I try not to take too much of like TikTok. <laughs> I told that to the kids yesterday. Follow me at, at Tony Rosa Speaks at gmail.com. Um, and um, my book is coming out. If you can, if you have the means to purchase the book, um, Teaching the Invisible Race, Embodying a Pro Asian American Lens in Schools, everything that I'm going to be talking about from now until next year is going to be centered around that because it is a community book. It has so many different voices in it, um, I guess, oral narratives within it, and just frameworks, mindsets, manifestos in it to help <laughs> poetry. To, kind of like a hollow hollow, if you know that uh, dessert, it's kind of like a hollow hollow pedagogical book um, to really not wait for policy, right? We can really mm-hmm. start teaching Asian American studies now in K-12. Um, so the book will help you do that. Amazing. When's the book come out? October, Philippine American History Month, uh, 2024, uh, 2023, this year. All right, October of this year. Uh, are the pre-orders available yet? You know what? I'm about to, the pre-order is available, but I guess this is the first time I'm telling people on the oh! show. It's, it's, it's live now. So I guess, I guess everyone's going to know um, the pre-order is there. It's, um, you know, it's on all places where books can be found <laughs> right now. So mostly Amazing. It's, it's from like Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. I'm really trying to partner with, Places like you, I mean, books and mm-hmm. other locations where we can actually get the funding to the communities that are Asian American owned. But for now, if you want it and you just want to like get with Tony, I was, I just had time today. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Barnes and Nobles. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tony. Re- again, really, really appreciate your time. It's an honor and a privilege for me to be able to sit here and have this conversation. And thank you for sharing for, with all of our listeners. Seriously, it, it means so much for you to be a part of the APAM conversations, this series specifically. Well, salamat for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, For everybody else, you can find 
all the links to everything that we talked about, Tony and I talked about in this conversation here in the show notes. And you can find us at Conversation Pod Piece on Instagram. If you do feel inclined, you can leave us a rating or a review, and that would be greatly appreciated on whatever podcast player that you are listening to this on right now. And if you are interested in supporting the show in the future, feel free to hop in my DMs or visit my website, patrickintheworld.me. Until next time, I am Patrick Armstrong, and this has been Conversation Piece. Thanks, Tony. Thank you.